Well, good morning, Doxa. Uh, It is a joy to be with you this morning, and from the bottom of my heart, genuinely, honestly, uh, we at City Bible, we love and we appreciate this church. Uh, We're grateful for what the Lord is doing in this specific region, the greater Sacramento area, and you were, to some degree, an example for us when... We were planting. I remember when I was considering coming back to Sacramento and to plant City Bible, I reached out to Scott and he gave me good, wise counsel and direction. And then a few years ago, uh, we sat down with some of our leadership with Scott and Chris and once again, we sought counsel asking, how do you deal with the growing pains of a church plant that continues to grow, and in the midst of 2020 and the Rona, no one allowed us or wanted us in their facility to celebrate our five-year anniversary, and you were kind enough to open up your campus and allow us as a church plant to celebrate. So we're grateful for you. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the kingdom mindset that you have. Uh, and I am excited to see what the Lord will continue to do at this specific local church. Scott, thank you for the opportunity. It is a joy to be here, and it is a privilege to open up God's Word. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings Chapter 9, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 14 this morning and going to one of my personal favorite passages in Scripture. And this is strategic to some degree because I know some of you are in your reading plans and there is a temptation that you will die in the book of Leviticus. And maybe just this snippet from 1 Kings 19 will encourage you to persevere to the Samuels and to the Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 14 and unpacking God's word. We read from God's perfect, infallible, and inspired word. Ahab told Jezebel, All that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose. And he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree or juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. 
And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he, Elijah, arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said to him, Go out and stand on the mount. Before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Good questions can be valuable. Good questions can be helpful. Good questions can even be powerful. We've seen throughout history that there are certain questions that have had a lasting impact. In our Western culture, when we think of utmost betrayal, we usually think of a question. Et tu, Brute, a Latin phrase meaning in you too, Brutus, allegedly the last words of Julius Caesar to one of his close friends, Marcus Brutus, at the moment of his assassination and betrayal. It is a question that is often linked with mourning, pain, and the unfairness of life. To be or not to be, asked by Prince Hamilton in, in Hamlet in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. It was with a question in the form of a statement that the 35th president of the United States in his inaugural address captivated a nation and encouraged a people to build up their country, a question that is still etched into history today. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But we don't have to look to history You just have to look at your own life and realize that you ask a ridiculous amount of questions. Statistically, you ask four questions every hour. That means 70 questions every day, 25,000 questions every year, and about 2 million questions in your lifetime. If you were to condense all of those questions into a book, it would be about 35,000 questions pages of questions. Two million questions, some important, some completely trivial. You asked questions this morning. Do I eat breakfast or do I continue with my intermittent fasting? 
I know there's going to be a guest speaker at church. Do I show up since Scott isn't preaching? What do I wear? Do I sit up front? And then there are the more important questions that you've asked in your life. Where do I go to college? What is going to be my profession? What do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to live? What church do I want to be a member of? And many of you have asked the earth-shattering question, will you marry me? Some questions have been helpful, others have hurt you. Some have stuck with you and some you have completely forgotten. On and on and on, you ask and you ask two million questions and yet the question that will influence how you answer every other question is, who is God? The answer to this question will change everything. The answer to this question will dictate how you live your life as A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I realize there are many ways you can answer that question, who is God? And I know this is a Bible teaching church that proclaims Christ and preaches the gospel. So I know your answer is going to be God is glorious. God is majestic. But this morning from this text, I want to remind you that God is glorious even in your personal disappointments. When we think about the glory of God, when we think about the nature of God, when we think about the majesty of God, we usually think big, transcendent qualities. We think about the God that spoke everything into being. We think about the God that when he speaks on, the Mount, si- on Mount Sinai, everything shakes. We think about Isaiah's throne room scene in Isaiah 6, big, loud, bright, striking awe into us, and that is majestic. When we think about the glory of God, we think about Jesus stooping low, becoming the God-man, taking on human flesh to die for sinners like us, and we say, oh, that is so grand. But, dear church, may we see God's majesty, wonder, and splendor in the traumatic aspects and even the disappointing and challenging details of your life. And we'll do that from 1 Kings 19 by making four observations in this text. We're going to make four observations in this passage in order to see God's majesty in the mundane and even traumatic details of our life, even in the midst of personal disappointment. The first three observations will kind of set up the context and will really address the issue in our fourth observation. First observation that we make from this text is a good desire. We'll start with a good desire. I know we're parachuting into 1 Kings here, but you have to understand that the exodus has already happened. Moses has led God's people out of the bondage that they were in in Egypt. Moses has died. Joshua has brought the people into the promised land. The period of judges has occurred. Saul has already been king. David has been king. Solomon has 
died, the nation has been divided into two kingdoms, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah tended to have mediocre kings and decent kings, while the northern kingdom had horrendous ones. Kings that built altars that offered sacrifices to false gods. Kings that made idolatry prevalent, the norm, and even acceptable. And in chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Kings, we see that idolatry has permeated the land. And God's people are worshiping a false deity, specifically the false deity named as Baal. Think about this. Think about this. A people that most likely still remembered the stories of how their ancestors were miraculously taken out of Egypt, how God had provided everything that they needed. A people who were blessed with a land that they did not cultivate and cities that they did not build. A people who were warned to not associate themselves with the Canaan culture, but rise above it as the true people of God have failed and now are worshiping false gods. And the ruler of the northern kingdom at this time is Ahab, and he is one that loves idolatry. But really, his wife Jezebel is calling the shots. And Jezebel hates Yahweh. She hates Yahweh's prophets. And prophets were even hidden in caves because they feared that Jezebel would take their lives. She is an illustration of evil. But the Lord is merciful to his people. And he continues to send messengers to warn and remind them of Yahweh, the true God. And one of these messengers is Elijah. He's the primary prophet of First Kings. Elijah was a great prophet. His name meaning Yahweh is my God. He was a man who had a good desire, and this prophet's desire was for the majesty and character of God to be recognized by all of Israel and Judah. That was his goal in life, and he desired for God's people to worship the true God and remember his covenant. We see a glimpse of this in 19.10. Look look at verse 10 of chapter 19. When Elijah is asked, what is he doing there? What, what, What does he say? He says, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God, I wanted these people to worship you. I want these people to worship you, and yet they continue to reject you. And and, and this is really important to understand because chapter 19 comes at a point where it seems like maybe God's people are actually going to turn back to God. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in 19 and just go back a few pages to the left. Look Look at chapter 17, verse 1. We read in 17.1 that, that Elijah says this to Ahab in 17.1. As, as, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So, so there's going to be no rain for a period of time. And then chapter 18, verse 1, we read, after many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So there was no rain and now rain is going to come. And chapter 18 is this great showdown between Elijah and the Baal prophets. 
they go to Mount Carmel, and Elijah is there, and he says, you 450 Baal prophets, me versus you, let's have a showdown. Let's build two altars. Let's put two oxen on each altar, and let's see whose fire actually comes down from heaven to consume the offering. Let's see whose God will react to our pleas. And he gives the Baal prophets home court advantage in the first attempt. They run around from morning to noon, and yet there's no answer from Baal. And Elijah begins to mock them, and he says to them, maybe your God doesn't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he went on a journey. Maybe he's taking a potty break. A sense of humor. False prophets began to scream louder, mutilating themselves, and yet no answer. And then what does Elijah do? We read in chapter 18, verse 30 to 35. And then the prophets said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order to cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. He says, okay, now my turn. Let me put this bull on this altar. And you know what? For you to realize it's not a fluke, take buckets and buckets of water and make sure that this thing is drenched. And then the prophet prays, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the offering, and Elijah takes the charge to slay 450 Baal prophets. This is it. This is it. False prophets gone. Finally, God's people are going to worship. This Prophet had a good desire. Church, do you have a good desire? Friend, do you have a good desire? I know you have good desires. Some of you have been looking for work for a while, and yet there's no opportunities. Some of you have a good desire for the government to finally get their act together so all of our friends don't move to Texas, Florida, Idaho, South Carolina. You younger people want to get married. Some of you want a good marriage. Some of you want to be safe and healthy. Some of you want your relatives that you've been praying for for decades to finally accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. You want your churches to get better. You want the gospel to spread. You have good desires, desires that are not evil. And this prophet is excited. He has a good desire. We read in verses 45 and 46 of chapter 18 that he runs alongside the chariot of Ahab for about 20 miles. He is thrilled. Victory has come. God's people will finally believe. Until we get to our second observation, an unexpected answer. A good desire that leads to an unexpected answer. So what's going to happen now? What's going to be the result of this? 
Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel repented of her sins. And we don't read that in God's word. That's not what she does. You'd expect her to change her mind, but hardened hearts don't care about miracles. Jezebel doesn't care about miracles. She wants Elijah dead. She wants him gone. So after an event like that, there is no nationwide conversion. Ahab and Jezebel didn't change their minds, and the people still don't care about worshiping Yahweh and remembering the covenant that they made. It's strange to me that Elijah had a good desire, and instead of granting it, God says, no, it's, it's not going to happen this way. You might say, well, how do you know? How do you know that he really had this desire? How, how can you be so sure that, that he gets an unexpected answer in this passage? Are you reading too much into it? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, Elijah is a prophet. That was his calling to declare the message of God to God's people in order for them to heed the words of God and obey him completely. And then we realize that when nationwide conversion doesn't happen and his life is once again threatened by Jezebel, he is extremely discouraged. We read in verse 3 that he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. I don't think it's fear, though. There's some controversy around verse 3 because the word there for fear can also be the word saw. He saw something in the Hebrew, and there's been some debate on how to translate that word. Should it be that he feared or that he saw what happened and then he ran? I don't think there is this petrified fear that's making him run away. Because in verse 4, he wants the Lord. He says, kill me, Lord. Take away my life. I I don't want to live anymore. And then we see another detail in verse 3 that he runs to Beersheba, which is the most southern southern point of Judah. So so he he travels about 100 miles. He is safe from the clutches of Jezebel, and yet he continues to travel even more. He doesn't stop. He goes into the wilderness. This man is discouraged. He's safe, but he's still traveling because there's more than fear in his heart. We don't have time to turn there, but when you look at this prophet, whenever he moves, it's usually at the direction of God's word. So you see it in in chapter 17 that when the word of the Lord came and told this prophet to do something, he acted. We see it again in chapter 18, verse 1, where the word of the Lord came and the prophet responded. But here he's moving without any direction from God. He is a man who is discouraged. He's discouraged because it's not an answer that he expected. He's downcast. He's downcast because he expected nationwide conversion. He expected because of God's revelation of his majesty and splendor, that would produce change, and it didn't happen the way that he wanted it to. How about you? You ever ever had a good desire that God said no to? You ever had God take something that seemed good away from you? 
this text is meaningful to me and why I wanted to share it with you is because this is the passage that I was studying seven years ago for preaching lab at the Master's Seminary. And our firstborn had just been born. She was just a few days old. And my father was on an STM, a short-term missions trip, to Ukraine to deliver radio equipment. And I remember burning the midnight oil, sitting at my laptop, finalizing the details of this text in order to preach it the next morning when my older brother kept calling me and I kept silencing that call thinking, no, man, this is not the time. I need to get some sleep. And then I finally picked it up. And he said, Vlad, we need to pray. Dad on his way home to the airport or from, from Ukraine, traveling to the airport in order to fly back to SFO and then meet my daughter. It was T-boned by a drunk driver. It was a critical condition in some village in Ukraine. And he said, just pray. I remember the entire night on my face, on my face, pleading with the Lord, saying, I know you can do anything. I know how powerful you are. I know how grand you are. I know how great you are. And, and I need him in my life. I need him in my life. I need him in my daughter's life. God, this isn't the right time. Please spare his life. A full night of pleading. And the answer to that prayer was... No. And he took him into glory. I, I had a good desire and God said no. This last week, same thing with one family in our church. Dad in critical condition. The entire church family is praying big, praying big for the Lord to do something. And God sometimes says no because he does what we do not expect him to do. Sometimes our God says no. Sometimes we endure trials. Sometimes the details of our life do not add up and make sense. And Ligon Duncan has said it very effectively when he said, when you hear someone say, you can have all that you want, you better be aware and certain that there's a hiss in that voice because that doesn't come from God. That would be the perfect job, God. And he says, no. That would be the perfect house. And he says, no, we really, really have been trying for a baby for so long. And he says, no, please heal that cancer. And he says, no. There's a reason for it. We're getting there. But before we get there, third observation. Third observation. And I've already alluded to this. A discouraged reaction. This prophet has a discouraged reaction, right? He runs all the way down to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he leaves his servant there. That's, that's his sign of resignation. I'm done. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I'm thrown in the towel. Take my two weeks notice, God. I'm no longer doing this thing. I'm not doing this for you anymore. He goes into the wilderness. He sits under a broom tree or a juniper tree, a uh, do the scarcity of plant life. This is one of the, the plants or trees that could give some shade and food for travelers. And then he says this discouraged thing. He says, it's enough now, o Yahweh, in verse 4. 
take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm not better than my father's. I no longer want to do this. I no longer want to live just like the prophets that came before me failed. I have failed as well. Dear friends, he's frustrated. He's discouraged. His hope is diminishing because his eyes are on his circumstances rather than on the Lord. And he cared more about the future than the one who is holding the future. It's familiar to us. It's familiar to us. When something happens to us that we don't expect, we begin to ask questions. Is, is God good? Is God even in control? Is he even sovereign? Is there a purpose for any of this? Is this faith in this God even worth it? Dear friends, Elijah is not a hero in this passage. He's not a positive example, but there's much that we can learn from this. How do we, how do we deal with this? When, when, when situations like this happen in our life, how do we deal with this? When we just moved back to Sacramento, there was this church that I would pass uh, on my way home, getting off the highway. And this church always had these like pithy statements I'll add on the sign. You know, every time I use this illustration, i got to make sure, like, the church that I'm doing it at doesn't have one of those signs, just in case. <laughs> but you guys don't. Good for you. Good on you. But I remember driving home, and you, and you see these signs, and it says something like, worry less, pray more. All right? How do you spell love? T-I-M-E. Some of them were political. The donkey and the elephant are fighting. Look to the lamb for answers. Jesus is coming hopefully before election day. And then I started doing research. I'm like, there's so many books out there on this stuff. There's like, you know, a thousand and one attention-getting sayings, the little book of church signs, church jokes, Bible jokes, Christian humor, funny church signs, and more. Church signs, 2017, day-to-day calendar. Some of them are trying real hard to be witty. Brush up on your Bible, it prevents truth decay. What's missing from CH, blank, blank, CH? You are. (laughs) Experts made the Titanic, amateurs made the ark. Some are trying to be real funny. Having trouble sleeping? We have sermons. Come here, one. (laughs) Do not criticize your wife's judgment. See who she married. God shows no favoritism, but our sign guy does Go Cubs. One of my personal favorites, whoever is praying for snow, please stop. We live in a culture of short, pithy statements, tweetable phrases. And they're all fun and games, and we can tweet them and we can reshare them. But when the bottom falls out, When the bottom falls out, what do we stand on? Which gets us to our fourth and final observation. A glorious explanation. A glorious explanation. So the Lord is going to minister to his prophet here. He's going to give him food, and he's going to give him water, and he's going to tell him to gear up because he's about to go on a journey. And this journey is going to be a strategic one. 
So Elijah eats multiple times. He drinks. He sleeps. He gets the rest that he needs. And he's going to go to, look at verse 8, and he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that forty of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. From Beersheba to Mount Horeb would require a little more than a quarter of that time, 40 days. 40 days being an indicator that this is a unique journey. This isn't just some travel that he's doing. God is doing something very specific here. And why is he going here? Why is he making this trip? Well, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. This is God's mountain. This is the mountain where God revealed himself to Moses. This is where, if you want to see a big, majestic God do something great and grand, this is where you go. He gave his law. He made his covenant with his people on this mount. And then we read in verse 9 that Elijah came to a cave. Another way to translate that is a cleft, which alludes to the fact when Moses was put into a cleft in order to see a glimpse of the glory of Yahweh passing by. So so Elijah is here to try to experience what Moses experienced, to see the mountain where God shook the land, the mountain where God's voice thundered, the mountain where God's people could sense the glory of God and were terrified, scared, and pleaded with Moses to go on behalf of them. The mountain where Moses got to see a glimpse of the glory of God and Elijah is seeking answers. So this is the place to go to. If you wanted to see God respond and react in a dramatic way, this is the right place to go to. The Lord asks, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And the answer, verse 10, there's no one left. It didn't happen. You sent me. I declared the message. I did everything, and it didn't work, just like it didn't work with the previous guys that you sent. And God reveals something to his prophet, a theophany, a manifestation of the power and the presence of God, but in a way that the prophet was not expecting. Let, let's see it. Let's see how God reveals himself to his prophet. Verse 11 of chapter 19. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, just like Moses, right? Yahweh passed by and a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake... But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. This terrifying wind that's breaking rocks off the mount. This earthquake that shakes the entire mountain. This fire that is this blazing, hot, blast and furnace, and yet God is not in any of those. You see what the Lord is doing? He's saying, you wanted me to act big. You wanted me to do something grand. You wanted me to do something glorious and majestic and and bright and awe-inspiring. You wanted me to go big, and yet it's not always like that. Where is God's voice heard? Verse 12, the sound of a low Whisper, the Hebrew there is a thin, silent sound. 
Elijah wanted something accomplished that was loud and big. He wanted the strong wind. He wanted the earthquake. He wanted the fire. And God to work in a marvelous way to change his people. But sometimes God prefers that which is still and small. And in verses 15 to 18, he's going to explain to his prophet how he's going to do this. He's going to send him back. There's going to be 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There will be victory over the house of Ahab, and he will have his prophet pass the baton to Elisha. And Elijah would never see the nationwide conversion that he himself desired. Dear friends, the overarching point is that this prophet had a good desire for God to work in a big way. And God answered, no. And in the midst of his discouragement, he's encouraged by being shown that God has a plan, that God is fully in control, that God makes the choices, that God is working in ways that we may not understand, and that God's glory and power and control is revealed even in the little details of our life because he is in control and fully working out his plan. How is he going to work out his plan in Elijah's life? Two ways. Two ways that you can take with you as points of application. Number one, God works, God works in the details for our good. God works in the details for our good. It ends well for the prophet, dear friends. Church family, it ends well for the prophet. He is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2. He gets to be in the presence of his God. His service is done, and we have to remember that God will work all things out for the good of those who love him. Don't let Romans 8.28 be a platitude. Don't let it be a fridge verse that you just look at every once in a while. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. This isn't cliche. This is the verse that we stand on when it feels like the bottom has fallen out. His grace is involved in every aspect of our life, even the challenging and the traumatic ones. I've heard it once said that you don't need a parachute to skydive, but you need a parachute to skydive twice. I respect that quote. Because I've jumped out of a plane before did it a few weeks before my wedding day. It's the way that I decided to determine if it was the Lord's will. <laughs> Semi-joking. Someone who knows nothing about the ramifications of jumping out of a plane will not see the value of a parachute. Dear friends, if you have not experienced the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel, then maybe these promises don't make sense to you. But when you realize that the second person of our triune God took on human flesh, had cheeks so that they could be beaten, 
had hands and feet so that nails could be driven through them, had a nervous system so that he could feel the full weight of wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin. When he died on that cross for sinners like you and I, our triune God made it clear that he loves us. And even the most painful, evil, wicked thing that could possibly happen to us will be for our ultimate good because he's proven his love to us through Jesus Christ. So we cling to that promise that God works in the details for our good, but secondly... He works in the details for his glory. I want you to to leave the Old Testament. I want you to go to Mark chapter 9 with me. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 and on. We read that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus alone. See what's happening here? The two individuals that experience God's glory on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, are allowed access to another mountain. They're allowed access to see something else. Jesus Christ giving a display of his unveiled glory. It's as if God says, Elijah, come come down. I want want to show you something. I want to show you something. You, You see what's happening here? I know you wanted nationwide conversion for Israel. I know that that was your goal. I know that that was your desire. But I had a bigger plan than that. I had a bigger plan than that. It wasn't about just Israel believing. It was about every tongue from every tribe, every nation, beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. That was my ultimate plan. And I was working out all the details for this so that one day the elders in the throne room of God will sing a new song declaring, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Beloved, will you believe me if I tell you that God is working out every single detail in your life for his ultimate glory and for the prophet? The plan was bigger than he could have ever imagined, and his plan for us is bigger than we could ever imagine. You know those those connect-the-dot pages that kids do? where you connect the dots and you kind of get to see what the picture is as you progressively connect the dot. When you were a kid, you were always frantically connecting those dots because you wanted to know what the picture is, right? And until you got to that final line 
You didn't realize what the picture was. But now, as an adult, if you see one of the kids doing this, you, all you have to do is just kind of zoom it back and be like, yeah, it's a car. <laughs> you don't even have to connect the dots. It's a car. In your trial, in the details that don't make sense, you are like that child that is frantically connecting the dots and saying, God, I don't know what this picture is, and I want to encourage you and say that there is a good father standing behind your shoulder saying, I know exactly what the picture is. Don't you worry and trust me. Doxa, be encouraged. And may we see the hand of God in the details of our life so that when calamities strike and when we receive a no, When trials come, we may see the glory of Christ even in that. Two million questions you'll ask in your life. The most important is who is God? Know that he's glorious. And more specifically, know that his glory is evident in the traumatic and mundane details of your life. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and you are glorious. Thank you for that reminder. I plead with you this morning to encourage those who are downcast, to strengthen those who are enduring difficult circumstances and help us all trust that you are working in the mundane and traumatic aspects of our life for our good and your glory. Father, we love you. Help us love and trust you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen.